Okay, if you have a Bible, open to the book of Ecclesiastes. Today we begin a new series. And so we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, that's page 553. In the Red Pew Bibles, Ecclesiastes comes right after the book of Proverbs. Uh, if you're flipping through your Bible, that's where you will find it. And uh, we are going to be looking at the entirety of chapter 1 this morning, but right now we're just going to read verses 12 through 18, and then Albert will come and unpack the rest of that for us. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. And so I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The word of the Lord. Ecclesiastes. It's going to seem like a chaotic study for the next several months, um, partly because this is just simply the way that Ecclesiastes is written. It's kind of this chaotic way that the author has written this stuff. It's, it's purposely written in this way uh, where it's kind of like jumping all over the place and it's this compilation of wisdom writings with like different musings and proverbs and poetry and stuff that goes in here. But, but all of this chaos is, is managed and orchestrated in, in a very great way. Um, I have to be honest with you, I've been actually quite frustrated in studying for this, which started several months ago. Uh, I've been in seminary, and one of my classes was a Genesis through the wisdom literature books. And so, um, and one of the biggest frustrations for me is as I study this, um, I'm just figuring out how little I know about it, because the more I dig, the more I discover, and the more I discover, the more I dig, and then it's like this never-ending cycle of things, which we'll talk about this cycle of things. And any of you who are in a profession or have developed a skill set or an expertise are probably familiar with this. Um, you, you think you know all you need to know about your subject matter, and then you're considered an expert in your field only to find out like you don't know all that much because especially like in fields of technology, right? It's like changing all the time or, or medicine or like science is just like figuring out things that are more and they're just getting more deep. And so you share my frustration. So why study Ecclesiastes? Why even bother looking at this book? Um, I want you to share in my frustration and experience the, what I've experienced the past several months. Um, and when you go into your small groups to discuss these things, uh, to discuss about Ecclesiastes, we can actually all kind of be in a group therapy session together about how maddening this book is. And, and I'm partially kidding, but not entirely kidding, because it's very true. It, it's, 
it's really maddening at the same time, yet it's so, so relevant. It's so practical. And you have to consider that this was written 3,000 years ago, and yet what Pastor Steve just read for us, it's so relevant for today, isn't it? Like, it still plugs right in as though it was written yesterday. Now, something that's always relevant is, is death. Death is always a relevant subject. We all experience it or will experience it. And a couple of weeks ago, I had the honor of conducting a memorial service, and it was this beautiful time of reflecting upon a loved one. And that's something that funerals and memorials tend to do is they, they, they're so helpful in addressing life's deeper questions to think about why we're here and what our purpose is being here, what the meaning of life is, and all these deeper questions. So one of the things that Ecclesiastes addresses is this, and this pops out at me. Ecclesiastes 7, let's just read this briefly before we jump into chapter 1, starting in verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's so true. Now, Ecclesiastes is a book on reality. It's a book on truth. And something that people have a really, really challenging time with is dealing with the reality that we live in, which is why we spend so much money on entertainment, which is why so much money is spent on substance that numbs us to help us escape things, that so much money is spent on fantasies, whether it's like books or video games or whatever it may be. It's always spent on these things. And here's an opportunity for our church family to deal with what's real every Sunday. And then in our small groups throughout the week to deal with what's real because Ecclesiastes provides us with this critique on secularism and humanism and even the way we look at real truth. Truth is something that we can't reject. And if we are to deal with what is genuinely real, honestly authentic, then we have to deal with truth. And we have to deal with absolute truth, which exists. And if you say that it doesn't exist, then you've just admitted to your absolute truth. Do you get that? Right? Because in you saying that there is no absolute truth, therefore that is your absolute truth. Therefore there is absolute truth. But it's so difficult to accept truth when that truth is so offensive to the way of your thinking. And in our culture, there is a lot of animosity towards truth, especially when it invades our morality. Because people really hate when their morality is questioned. And here's the challenge for our church because some of the morality that the church tries to force down people's throats is not essential to the gospel of Jesus. And so there has been a lot of damage done by those who profess following Jesus and in the name of Jesus haven't represented him well. And I'm sure that we've all been guilty of this at some time. So how do we do this gospel-centric ministry given that we have this history of not being good missionaries, of not being good ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus? 
Some things have been done well. I'm not saying we've done everything not well. And other things, just not so good. But let's move forward doing good, representing Jesus well, without compromising what Jesus teaches. And so here in Ecclesiastes, this can be a really helpful guide because it's very non-offensive. If you just read the tone of it, it is so different from reading prophetical books because the prophets will come out, like Isaiah, for example, right? Repent, and if you don't, judgment is coming, and it seems so like, ah. But this is not how Ecclesiastes is written. He's not talking about like a judgment coming. He's not talking about how terrible we're living. He's not saying any of this, which is all true. I'm not saying those prophet, what those prophets said isn't true. It's true, but Ecclesiastes' tone is different. He, he's coming from this philosopher point of view, and he's simply presenting truth to us. He's simply writing to us, appealing to us with universal facts, universal truths. Does life have a point? And if life does, what is it? And are we here by chance? And if we're not, then how do we figure out why we're here? So what the author does is he writes this carefully crafted tapestry of these conflicting viewpoints and these themes, which is what causes some frustration. And if you try to catalog all these different themes, it seems that some of them are contradictory, but then all of this is intentional to exhibit chaos. He wants to show us chaos. Now, if you're a pessimist or if you're a realist, you're going to love this book. You're going to love this book because what he does is he just pokes holes into everything that one can possibly build their life on. And he just pokes holes in it so that your boat sinks. And then after he's doing this, he's showing that everything that we're striving for, he's pointing out that it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. It's all futile. And he deconstructs everything that we've built our life upon. So let's jump into deconstructing our life. Verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The Hebrew word for the prophet here is this word koheleth. It's an important word. That, that Hebrew word koheleth doesn't outright say that he's Solomon, even though it alludes to it. Um, but it doesn't outright say that it's Solomon because it's possible that whoever wrote this is writing it from uh, kind of like third person and writing it about Solomon and what he's experiencing possibly. Or it could be Solomon writing it in first person. But there's really no point in fussing about who Koheleth means or is because that's not the point of the writing. Otherwise, the name would just be given to us. Now, what Koheleth is going to do is he's going to present these paradoxes of life and then he's going to reason with the readers of these writings as to what their conclusions are to see what is meaningful and what is meaningless and what he's going to do is present these enigmas in a manner where he himself has experienced these things firsthand he's not writing theories he's not writing um, uh, principles he is writing what he has lived through experienced by himself or observed others living through. And we're going to find that this book knows us really well. It describes us really well. Verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanities. So in ancient Jewish writing, what the main point the writer is trying to make, they usually put it right up front, right in the beginning, so that you get 
what they're going to talk about. It doesn't come as a surprise later. They tell you right up front. So here in verse 2 is the important thing. He also uses this as a bookend in that it shows up again in chapter 12, verse 8. So what he's doing is he's framing. He's using this as a framing device. Chapter 1, verse 2, and towards the end, chapter 12, verse 8. And he's using it for this entire book to prove his point that it's all vanity. And so what Koheleth is essentially writing is everything is meaningless. Everything is vanity. And so there's different English words that are used, vanity, meaningless, futile, but the same Hebrew word, and that Hebrew word is hebel. It's a really important word. It means meaningless or it means vanity. And the version that we have in our pew Bibles is using the word vanity, but it's the same Hebrew word, hebel. It's translated meaningless, vanity, either one. Now, this word is really, really important. It shows up 64 times in the Old Testament, but it's 35 times alone in the book of Ecclesiastes. It is a key word to this book. There are five categories to put Hebel in. It doesn't always mean the same thing. It can range from literal to metaphorical. And so you can put it in these five categories. Category one, it could be the ephemeral. It could be the fleeing thing. Category two, it could be the futile, ineffectual thing. Thirdly, an enigmatic, incomprehensible category. Fourthly, absurd. And fifthly, maddening or delusional. And so you can put Hebel into one of these five categories here. And so when we're coming across Hebel or vanity in our Bibles or meaningless, it falls into one of these five categories. And you just kind of need to keep that in mind as we read through Ecclesiastes because it's not always the same category. All right. So uplifting and encouraging. Let's continue. (laughs) It really isn't, right? It's not. But we're dealing with reality. We're dealing with truth. So the preacher, Koheleth, lays out truth. And he's going to build the case for the rest of the book into why this is. Why it's all vanity. Why it's all meaningless. Verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Here's this phrase, under the sun. It's a really, really important phrase. It appears 28 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. So we have... Koheleth, the writer, we have Hebel, which appears 35 times, and we have Under the Sun, appears 28 times. When Koheleth assesses all that has happened throughout his life and in the lives of others that he's observed, he's not writing, or he's not just writing, from a spiritual lens where he's taking into consideration or he's taking the position that there is an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent, infinite, personal, creator God. He's not taking that into consideration. The way he's writing this is he's writing it from a philosophical lens. He's writing it with this structure that is built on secular thought. So you don't have to believe in God to read this. You don't have to even think that there is a God. He's actually saying Don't even think about that. Let's just think about this secularly. Let's just think about this um, from a humanist standpoint. And we'll read that from this perspective. He's not using just a religious framework, even though he'll mention God a little later. He's using life's experiences from birth to death. 
And then he surveys the course of life from birth to death, and that if that's all life is in this world from birth to death, and it's all contained within this secular container of life, then we've all been duped. If this is really what it is, because this life is short, we just live this short walk from birth to life, which is actually meaninglessness to meaninglessness, vanity to vanity. And the verdict of life is built upon secularism with this phrase, under the sun. And it is under this secular lens that the Koheleth goes about this attempt to figure out what life is about in this under the sun, who we are, how we fit in the universe, what are we, all these deeper questions under the sun are actually a waste of time because they are meaningless. They are vanity under a secular lens when we're on this journey of birth to life. So for the rest of the book, he's going to show the facts of life that bear witness of this thesis. Now verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. So that term under the sun is really important to keep in mind because it is code language. It is code language for leaving God out. So this enclosed capsule, under the sun is leaving God out of it. It's like ignore God and it's just us. So no God. So what the preacher essentially is writing is that if this is what life's all about, this hamster wheel of life, then life sucks. Because then it's just boring drudgery and toil that is just stuck in this capsule. And yet this is the life of a lot of people, which is why we create so many distractions and ways of escapism for ourselves. Right? That's why we read the fantasy books. That way, that's why we write the stories. That's why we play the video games and watch the movies. And we, we, we try to think outside of under the sun. Naturally. Because working day after day until we can't work anymore and die is terrible. So most of us work, 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 day off, day off. Work, 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 day off, day off. Work, 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 day off, day off. Some of us just work, 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 work. No day off. So monotonous. So boring. We wake up, we go to work, we go to bed. We wake up, we go to work, we go to bed. We wake up, we go to work, we go to bed. Until you can't do it anymore. And then you die. CBS Money Watch had this article uh, 11 months ago. According to a new Gallup study on the American workplace, found that two-thirds of the American workforce are disengaged at work or worse. 51% feel no real connection to their job. 16% resent their jobs. Sometimes I question if my dentist falls under one of these categories. I'm like, what's wrong? Just kidding, my, my dentist is my uncle. I love him. <laughs> and 
I have a question because there, was some, there were some sickos in the first service. I want to find out how many sickos are here. How many of you enjoy commuting to and from work? So there are some. I hate commuting. Except there was a time span in my life that I loved commuting, and it was actually when I had an hour and a half commute from San Dimas, California to L.A. City. My commute one way was an hour and a half. So I had three hours of commute. And the reason why I liked it was I was in um, pastoral school at the time, and we had to listen to like a number of sermons. So I can get in three sermons one way. So I could listen to six sermons um, round trip. And so the sermons were actually an hour long each. And you're like, how did you fit that? Back then, they had this thing called a Walkman. And, and the, they were on tape. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. What's that? What is that? Like masking tape? Like, and so I plug it in, and the reason why I plugged in my, my Walkman is because my, my cassette deck in my car. Can you believe it? Like who, who has cassette decks in their car anymore? Yes! Love it. So I, it had a dub, so I could speed dub it like on my Walkman. And so that's what I did. And so it sounded like a chipmunk. And I was like, the Lord, the Lord. And so... So I could do that, and so I loved my commute back then, but most of the time, outside of three of you that raised your hands, you don't like to commute. There is a reason why road rage is real. Like, we, we don't like this, and yet it's, it's just part of that wheel. And then in verses 4 through 11, we're given this really artistic poem to give us the cyclical imagery that we're talking about, the circular imagery that he's going to talk about. And all of this imagery is working in this closed system of under the sun. A system working without God. Right? It's under the sun. That it's leaving God out. We are in this closed system of being on this treadmill of life that we can never get out of until you die. You're born into it and then you die. Verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the stream flows, there they flow again. So you see this cyclical imagery which started in verse 4 where our predecessors were born and then they died. And then so will we and so will our descendants. We all come and go. Then it goes through verse 11. And it's just kind of showing the repetitiveness, the cyclical way that life is. That the sun goes up, the sun goes down, winds blow to and fro, and we have these seasons. Streams run into the sea, then there's evaporation, and then it goes back into the mountains and into the streams, and it goes back into the sea again, and it goes back. And so it's showing the repetition and the cycles. And Koheleth is just pointing out our own life's repetition, its own cycles, how meaningless it is, that it's vanity. And that this is the nature of life, and we're constantly trying to change it up. We're constantly writing stories and talking about fantasies and spaceships and, mo and zombies and all this kind of stuff. We're just trying to get out of this thing. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. And so the appetites of our life, they're never satisfied. Our eyes, our ears, they're insatiable. We always want more. We want faster, 
better, clearer, sharper. We always want more, and we can't ever keep up with all the things that we want. It's just this pointless struggle, and because there's always more, we always want more education, more knowledge, more materialism, more hedonism, more of whatever life has to offer, we want more. Verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has, all, it has been already in the ages before us. The first thing that I thought about was the wheel. Right, the wheel, it's still the best shape for movement over ground. The wheelbarrow has been around for who knows how long, a long time. And ultimately, if you think about this, the wheel is still on the most sophisticated jets that take off and land on aircraft carriers. It's still a wheel. And the so-called improvements that we've made, they actually birth a whole new set of problems. So you think about all these massive buildings that we can build for commercial use or residential use, and yet we've destroyed the environment in the process and then we have to try to figure out like, what are we doing with our air? What are we doing with these animals and the soil and all this kind of stuff? So really, how much have things changed? And sure, we might be more comfortable today because we're not living in caves anymore, we're living in houses, but ultimately it's still an entryway with a roof over our head and walls. And we still eat. We haven't developed a system or evolved into like not having to eat anymore. Thank God, I love eating. <laughs> and we still sleep. And we still work. Like we still do the same things after like thousands of years of evolving. So ultimately, how much of life has really changed for us? And yet, this is the secular view of under the sun. This is outside of God. This is just a secular view. 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So things become insignificant very fast. Remember the Atari 2600? Yes! And some of you are like, no clue what it is, you're like, what? I know what a switch is, but I don't know what that is. You're missing out. It's, it's a lovely thing. But in order for us to remember things, we have to do a fair amount of digging. We have to do a fair amount of research because things are just so easily forgotten. We think things today are so important when in like 100 years, people aren't even going to think about the people today or the events today or the inventions today. It's just coming and going. So if this is how things are from a secular lens, then where is their hope? If there is no God, this is what we're left with because what else is there in this capsule? Because hedonism is unquenchable. That hamster wheel of life is not satisfying. Materialism can never be enough. But what else is there? Now Christians have been misrepresenting things, I think, because we've been so concerned with life after death, which is a really important thing to consider. But that's not all that there is to consider because people are also wondering if there is life before death. Can I experience life now? Or do I have to wait 
to experience life? Do I have to die to experience it? And no. Sometimes Christians, people who claim to follow Jesus, are so consumed and so enamored with life after death that there's little concern with living life before death. That you and I can have a life abundant and fulfilled. Life as a follower of Jesus is more than just mere survival. Mere survival is not fulfilling. Just trying to figure out where your next meal is coming from, if you're able to like be warm, that is horrifying. It's dissatisfying. It's disappointing. It's displeasing. People aren't finding life's most important questions answered through secularism. That's why people are so spiritual, especially around the Bay Area. Go talk to anybody here. Go down to the lake. You are going to find that people are very spiritual. It's, it's challenging here to find someone who is not somewhat spiritual. And it's because people around here know that there's so much more to life than what secularism, what humanism can offer. They're always thinking beyond. They're trying to think beyond the capsule. They're trying to think beyond under the sun. And so there are a bunch of gods here that people worship. And these gods can take the form of a lot of things. Knowledge, education. People are so into knowledge here. They want to learn so much. They're into relationships. They're into whatever else. Good stuff, actually. And everyone around here worships those gods. Everyone around here, you can't find anyone here that's not pro-education, and, and many people around here believe it will solve every one of life's problems. Is that true? Because we've been more educated in our world history than ever before. And yet we have more serious problems today than we've ever had. Before 50 years ago, there was, or even like 60, 70 years ago, there was no way for the earth to destroy itself with just a series of buttons. But we can do that now. And it's because of knowledge. There is not a lack of education. We're giving people a lot of knowledge. The problem is that we give people knowledge, but we're not necessarily giving wisdom. And it's not the wisdom of unlimited, unlimited wisdom or uh, wisdom without boundaries. We're actually not giving people wisdom that shows them their limits, that shows them their boundaries. Therefore, let's kill all of us with the series of buttons. It's okay. Yet wisdom's a vanity also. We'll get to that. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. That is a really puzzling verse, 13. Because this is, this is saying that that unhappy business is the will of God. That he did this. And the reason humanity experiences these things under the sun is because of God. Why? Well, God is pointing out to us that everything under the sun is vanity. That it's all meaningless. That it's all empty. And any road under the sun is just this cyclical, repetitive journey that is a dead end. And it's, 
It's wisdom that points to limits and boundaries. And that word for wisdom in verse 13 is not the same word used for wisdom in, say, like the book of Proverbs. How is it different? In Ecclesiastes, it's, it's very personal. You'll see that he uses the word I. He makes it very personal. It's describing this self-generating quest for wisdom that, that is based off of our experiences and our observation. And so here's this nerdy seminary phrase for it. Autonomous empiricist epistemology. So how do we, let's break that down. Autonomous. It, it comes from me. It starts, starts from me. It starts from the self. Empiricist. It's based off of experience. It's based off of uh, uh, observation, what you see, what you experience. Epistemology. How do I know what I know? So Ecclesiastes is focused on this personal quest for, for wisdom versus, say, a community-driven wisdom, which Proverbs encourages, because Proverbs encourages gaining wisdom from the Word of God, from the law, from elders, from being taught to ask for it, to cry out for it, and it's revealed to us in the Word of God. Ecclesiastes does not do that, because he's saying, under the sun... Go look for it. Go experience it. Go look for it yourself and, and find it out. And then it's not until the end of his writing in chapter 12 that he points out this personal quest is actually to, to, to figure out that it's actually vanity. That you looking in yourself, thinking that you're gaining all this wisdom and experiencing all these things is actually going to lead you to a, this cyclical thing. Now, verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So outside of God, those things can't be harmonious. Now, if this is not truth, if this is not truth, then why has humanity over the last several thousand years not figured it out? Why do we still struggle with the same things, with murder and stealing and lying and wars. Why, why do we still struggle with the same exact things that people struggled with thousands of years ago? How come we haven't developed or evolved into something better? And yet here, Koheleth is telling us why, is that we can't live in harmony under the sun. That secularism and humanism don't allow for that. Because it's just this repetitive thing where people are just trying to get out of it. And yet we are, as people are so proud to think that we can figure things out on our own, but how have we done? I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, but in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. We know that wisdom and knowledge aren't the answers. We also know that religion is not the answer. That it's God himself, the creator, 
the omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent God that answers these deeper questions, that there is life before death as well as after death. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no way to know God. There's no way to exit under the sun except through Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, I am the door. He's that door for under the sun and getting out under it. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. You're born into it, but you can find a way out of it. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Let's pray. Lord, um, amazing your truth that even after 3,000 years, here we are. And we can get from place to place faster. We can talk with people on the moon. And we, we have so much that makes things so much more comfortable for us. We've advanced in technology, we've advanced in business and finance and banking and all these sorts of things, yet, Lord, the, the realness of life and the hearts of people, it's the same, that we still don't have peace, that we still don't have justice, that we still don't exercise mercy and grace the way that you do. God, may we not be fooled with this under-the-sun mentality. May we be able to recognize the repetition and cyclical way of life of not having you in it. And God, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know Jesus who promises us to be the door, to be able to get out of being under the sun, I pray, God, that you would speak to that person and invite them, God, to question. Invite them to a small group to continue these conversations throughout the week to, to come up for prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.